as artificial intelligence continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation that we can't ignore, AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. With over 750 specialized hackers in their community, HackerOne isn't just theorizing. They're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large organization, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI dash safety dash security. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI dash safety dash security. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live small group cohort based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us go to gigantic.is that's gigantic.is and save your seat for our january cohort your potential is gigantic and we're here to help you reach it go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today all right so here we are one of the uh, elephants the cool thing about these guys is that, is that they have really, really, really long um, trunks, and that's that's cool. And that's pretty much all there is to say. What did I just listen to? That is a piece of internet history. Which internet? <laughs> this internet, right? This is the first video ever <laughs> posted on YouTube by co-founder Jawad Kareem ah. back when it was actually a dating site. It's seriously a dating site. Honestly, not a joke, right? Today, we're going to explore the pivot that created what we know today as YouTube. Welcome to Rocketship.fm. Rocketship.fm is produced in partnership with Product Collective. We are your hosts, 
Michael Saka. And I'm Mike Belsito. The year is 2005. Three PayPal employees, Steve Chen, Chad Hurley, and Jawad Karim, are hanging out in a coffee shop talking. Trying to figure out what other problems technology could help solve. Here's Steve Chen from an oral history interview he conducted with the Computer History Museum. It was important to get the 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 three of us always in one room and just spending the three hours just uh, throwing out ideas and um, somewhat being really respectful of one another. And so I think that um, it was, there's a list of things, but um, it was more about working together to kind of evolve or talk about, um, look, here's an idea that I have about finding homes. Like, Chad, would you ever use this? And I think that whole process, and as we started getting better at it, was trying to figure out what we wanted to do. Was this problem that just something that um, that I was having? Was this something that um, the group would also see as being useful for them? But a lot of it, a lot of it was the a sort of we never built anything at that time. It was just purely uh, conversations and. And I think that's it. I mean, I think that um, it wasn't even just, that wasn't completely new to us in 2005. We've always gotten together and talked about, even when we were full employees at PayPal, and we still were at the time. Um, it was just talking about, is there other, something else that technology could be able to fix? Was there something else that we shared um, in, in a belief that if there was something like this, we would be able to all use it and to be able to um, see just other friends and other people using it. So they were looking for a problem that technology could help solve, something they could all agree on. Something that their friends and their friends' circles would use, something universal. And then one fateful day while they were waiting for coffee in San Francisco. And this is one of those magical, you know, San Francisco moments that we all hear about. Right. It's the reason VCs in the early 2000s would only invest in founders in San Francisco, or they would make companies move to San Francisco after investing in them. Yeah. The serendipity of having so many people working in technology in a condensed area, something Tony Shea described as collisions, the chance encounters that allowed entrepreneurs to create their own luck. If you're in an environment where you're always running into people, the chances of one of those collisions being meaningful goes up. Tony designed the redevelopment of downtown Las Vegas around this concept. And living through that boom and bust in Vegas, well, you hear a lot about San Francisco and collisions. So anyway, back to the coffee shop one morning in San Francisco in 2005. PayPal, when during that period, was in Mountain View. And as part of the day, all of us would be building uh, different features, different products, and then they would go out for... Um, we would always go out for coffee during the afternoon. And during that afternoon at um, and in Mountain View, we would also meet just not uh, fellow co-workers and friends from PayPal, but we would be meeting some of the other entrepreneurs in the area. And there were many that were in Mountain View at the time. And so there was a, there was a coffee shop, this Dana Street coffee shop that we would pretty much be every day and uh, while we were waiting for coffee, we would be talking with others. But on this day, they ran into an entrepreneur who ran a successful dating site. Somebody that we had met there was Jim Young, who was the co-founder of this 
website called Hot or Not. Um, and the, uh, the, the idea of Hot or Not was um, you, you would upload photos of yourself, but as a user, what you would do is uh, you would gauge based on every photo that you would see whether or not the photo represented someone that was hot or not. And so it would, uh, within about 10 minutes, you could actually go through just, uh, uh, you know, with, with just clicking hot or not, uh, you would be able to go through hundreds of these photos. And so um, having talked to uh, Jim at the time, I think it gave us the idea that whether or not we can do something maybe similar to it using videos instead. So hot or not, the attractiveness rating that launched in 2000. And Michael, I wish I could say I've never used hot or not, but I actually can't say that. <laughs> This was before MySpace, before Facebook, before Twitter, before Tinder. There was hot or not. Yeah. I mean, terrible concept, right? It, <laughs> but it was quite revolutionary in terms of internet development. And it was the genesis for revolutionary concepts like the public profile at a time when uploading pictures of yourself was seen as a oddity or a risk. All before MySpace was even a twinkle in Tom's eye. So YouTube originally wanted to be the video version of Hot or Not. Yeah, get it? You tube. We started talking about using videos for something. In the beginning, we never thought the application for videos for what YouTube is today to be a, a general place to upload any type of content. Um, it was trying to figure out a specific purpose. Um, and so that specific purpose, we started using Hot or Not as an example of can you create Hot or Not using videos instead of photos. So from these meetings, we started talking more about this. So then it's February 14th, 2005. Valentine's Day. I remember it was February 14th in 2005. So that was a Valentine's Day. And the, all three of us were in on Valentine's Day in Chad's garage. Um, his, uh, his dog was there and the three of us, Javed, Chad, and I were there in that, that room talking about whether or not we can create a video version of Hot or Not. But first, they needed a name. Something sensible. And available. I mean, there are a few memories from that night. I think that, um, one, we did a Google search after we came up with the, the name YouTube, you being as a, a sort of user-generated content, and Tube representing a, a, a TV. And so it was kind of you user-generated to be the person that's creating this content and you to be the um, on the other side of it, to be the viewer of this content. And the viewing and the creation is for the TV or something representative of the TV. And when we came up with that name, we did a quick search on Google. And it's hard to believe today, but in 2005, if you did that search for YouTube on Google, zero results came up. Uh, so that night we registered the domain name YouTube. Uh, you can still go back and find when the domain was registered. And we started talking about how we were going to build this out. Okay, so YouTube now has a name, a concept, and the team is about to start building the first version. More on that after a quick break. Before the break, YouTube had just decided upon a name, and now they're going to begin building their initial concept based on hotornot.com. Days after that 
evening was when we started looking at the technology that became YouTube today. And so there are a few things there that um, it's hard to believe that before 2005, these things were not possible. It was not possible to watch a video inside a browser across the uh, sort of the various operating systems from the Mac to the Windows and different version of Windows. Because of that, um, it was not possible to be able to embed one of these videos onto your own website, onto, at the time, a uh, uh, MySpace at the time. And I think the uh, last key thing that we did at YouTube was this natural um, ability to be able to, without human interaction in between any video that you would upload, whether it's from your, um, you know, your webcam, your, your digital camera, as soon as you upload it, it would be viewable to anyone that you want to share that with. And so what that involved was this transcoder that was written, which would understand all the different video codecs out there and all the audio codecs out there and the combinations of the two and being able to transcode that video into a video that was viewable inside the browser. Um, and uh, I think all three of those were key to the, the success of YouTube. I mean, the idea itself was an innovative idea, but to be able to streamline that process, to be able to take any video that you can create from any source and to be able to have that be immediately available for you to share and also to embed on uh, websites, web pages, and profile pages that you use on other websites. Nobody else was doing that at the time in 2005. I feel like this was part of an era that is now past us, right? I mean, I might be wrong, but this was a group of technologists who didn't start a business, but they built technology, and then they tried to figure out a business. But the way that they thought about the needs of that technology were fairly universal. Uh, even though the original idea was uh, questionable. Uh, they were thinking about the underlying technology through more universal use cases uh, before they were even necessary. I think that the hardest part about launching YouTube during those days was just trying to get the videos to be synchronized with the video and the audio from all the so different hard. codecs out there. I remember just creating so many four second, five second videos of just talking in front of the uh, the, the camera and just trying and testing all the different codecs out there. It's a bit like building an operating system or even PayPal, where they came from, right? They were thinking in terms of infrastructure. There was definitely a, a lot of you know, all-nighters that were pulled to be able to have this all put together in a matter of months, right? Um, but the, the real key thing was the technology, being able to just work with videos. Everything else, you know, again, um, to be able to register for a user. That's, we've done that all the time with databases, with the ability to be able to, you know, um, do a registration to be able to share the emails that go out. That's pretty much standard stuff that the real change that we did was with videos. And so that was deep diving for months into how we can we can um, embed these videos. The video codec that we ended up using was the only one that was already inside the majority, over 95% of the browsers at the time, and that was using flash video. And so any video that we would that would be uploaded, we would be able to retranscode that into flash. And because it's in flash and because it's embeddable inside a browser, that made 
things a lot easier for all the other uh, features that we wanted. So as soon as that was uploaded, then we would transcode that video. We would create image stills that you can actually um, embed onto other sites. You can embed this flash player onto other sites uh, and you can um, as long as it's on any other site out there, anytime you press the play button, it would be streaming from YouTube. Uh, and so all of that was making sure that we could get videos that were uploaded from different devices to be transcoded into a video that was in the Flash codec. And that was it. Uh, but that probably took the longest amount of time. Um, there's just a, a lot of back-end requirements for it, the amount of compu uh, computational power that's required to be able to do it, the amount of um, storage that's required to be able to host this, to be able to generate a lot of this on the fly, and just to be able to understand all the different audio codecs and video codecs out there to be able to transcode it to one codec that was usable across all the browsers. And this infrastructure thinking was their saving grace. And it pointed them directionally to what YouTube would eventually become because we know how that dating concept panned out. It was from February to May. May was when we launched the dating site, uh, the this video dating site. In between that time, Google Video had come out as well. And uh, I remember it was around April of 2005 where we had a meeting, not about the product, but discussing whether or not we should give up um, because we would be competing and, and not directly, but competing with Google Video. And uh, we were so close to just releasing it. So we, we decided, let's just get this out there and we'll see how it does. And when we released this video dating site as YouTube, uh, we literally got zero users, um, zero videos uh, uploaded during that whole week. I mean, I, I looking back again, it should have just been a general video site. I, I think that uh, it's hard to believe that some prospective dater <laughs> would sit in front of a, a webcam and just uh, for a minute talk about who they are, what they're looking for. And I would say that uh, all the videos would be the same, more or less. It would just be a different person greeting and introducing themselves. So we really didn't get uh, all the back end was working. Anytime you wanted to upload a video, it would be able to transcode or create the image sales. You can fast forward, you can reverse, you can share the videos, you can embed the videos, but just we weren't getting any videos. It's hard to imagine this from a site today that sees 500 hours of video uploaded every minute. No kidding. So this sounds like a quick pivot, which we'll discuss right after a quick break. So before the break, YouTube had launched a video version of Hot or Not, where they encouraged people to upload videos of themselves talking about who they were looking to date. And despite their encouragement, no one was uploading any videos. So it was time for a pivot. We ended up just uh, taking the ex everything on the back end side of YouTube from its first days as a dating site, re rebuilding it on only the presentation tier. So no longer sort of hearts, it became stars, you know? Um, and then it was really just, let's take the same concept and generalize it. And that's what YouTube became a week after the launch. A week after launch, it shows where their focus was. They were quick to iterate on the use case for the site while keeping their underlying technology intact. It's as if they were really looking for a use case for video technology. Much like PayPal had provided a platform for payments that could be embedded anywhere on the web, they took the same approach for video, allowing it to be uploaded, shared, and consumed in a streamlined and normalized manner for the web. And so with this pivot, the journey began for YouTube. I think 
different from many of the other startups out there, YouTube was not necessarily competing or trying to create a better version of a solution to a problem that already existed by uh, at the time of launch or by uh, competitors out there. YouTube didn't really have much competition at that point. YouTube was more about whether or not it was even possible to use the internet as the distribution platform for videos. Um, at the time, still, bandwidth was astronomically priced compared to what it is today, right? And with YouTube, every time you wanted to watch a video, it's fine for the viewer because they're already paying for broadband on a monthly basis and they're able to stream this content. But for every one of the views on YouTube, it's positive on one side because people are using the website, people are using the app, and people are using it to share and to watch videos. But every time somebody viewed the video, we had to pay for it. And there was, there was no benefit to the growth of the website. We weren't getting, it wasn't getting optimized. We just always had to pay the same bills. Uh, so in a way, as the website grew, as the number of views grew, we were just spending more and more money. And so the, in those days, it was just trying to see if it was even possible to be able to sort of use the internet as the distribution rather than using, um, you know, sort of a cable to your, your house. And so during those early days, it was more about let's try to optimize for everything, the amount of uh, uh, computational power it takes to transcode a video, the amount of um, uh, the amount of power to store that the storage of these videos. I mean, the videos are sizable, and every time a video gets uploaded, we would have to find storage for it. We would have to find backups for it. We would have to stream this content anytime somebody wants to view it. And so we didn't have funding at the time. So I think the big thing in those early days was just trying to see if we could serve, it, not just if we, if the internet could be the back end for videos. At the time, MySpace was the hot social network. And influencers, if we can even call them that. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't even really a concept. But yeah, they were the archetype users for what today we call influencers. So yeah, these influencers on MySpace, they saw an opportunity to reach their audience through video. When YouTube started, it was always trying to find, all right, so what is the real use case here? Um, there's a, a kind of video bloggers out there um, that were trying to create uh, blogs using video. There is the, the case where um, you have a birthday party and the grandfather takes a video and wants to share it with the, with the family, yes. But what about a more general use case where you're uploading the video without intention of exactly who's going to be viewing this? It's the, it's the whole concept of a, a more public, potentially viral video. I think similar to those case, days at PayPal and eBay again, where PayPal was a service, it provided the ability to be able to send money from one person to the other. But how often do you need to use that service on a day-to-day -day basis? Not often from my day-to-day -day routines, but on eBay, they need to do that every time a buyer and a seller needs a transaction, every time the auction ended. So with YouTube, it found that the users on MySpace, um, a, a social networking platform, would be the ideal audience for, for YouTube. They already shared a lot of photos, uh, and they had the same devices to take videos that took those photos. And so 
we found out that MySpace users were just using, once they found out that YouTube existed, and once they found out that it was able to embed these videos that they created on their devices, uploaded to YouTube and be able to, we would have a, a, um, a little copy and paste code that you can just copy it and put it into your Facebook profile or your MySpace profile and to be able to see that video plain. And it would just look like it's a, you know, whatever your photo is and then there's a video that's seamlessly integrated. The only thing that we would put in there would be a, a YouTube logo when you started, uh, when, when the video is embedded in there before you hit the play. And as you clicked on that, if you tapped on um, the video itself, it would bring you back to YouTube. And so that was sort of viral marketing. We didn't have, we didn't have money to be able to do any marketing, but I still think the, um, the best form of marketing is this, is this viral marketing, this organic marketing, because it means the, um, in a way that the, the users are responsible for the marketing, but it also means that it's a, it's a lot more authentic, that it's not a, it's not an advertising, it's not someone, but it's someone that you actually trust, a friend, a family member that's using this service and you too would use it. But there was a problem. MySpace didn't like their audience using YouTube at the time. They wanted to own all the content being posted on MySpace. But just like the days with eBay, PayPal, MySpace was not happy with YouTube. And in fact, um, MySpace probably would have never let YouTube on, but we found a way with the embed code to get around what MySpace permitted. And so for a number of months there, YouTube was being used by more and more and growing number of users. Uh, and I remember in, um, and, and it was it was this constant battle between the two. MySpace would try to do something that would make it harder and YouTube would change and we would uh, adapt to it. And so for days, it would not be possible to, to embed or watch a video. And then for days, it, uh, it, it was fine again. And I do remember um, it was a uh, December, 26, 27, 28th, somewhere right after Christmas on 2005, MySpace completely banned YouTube from being used. And so for that period of time, no matter what, um, the old videos that you had already uploaded to YouTube and no uh, no new videos could be uploaded to YouTube that uh, that could be seen on, on MySpace. And um, I think that was the... Uh, I think that was a call, again, similar to PayPal and eBay, which was calling out to the users that were using the service. It's not just for the benefit of YouTube as a company, um, but it was, it was almost calling out to the users. And the reason that I, they used MySpace was to be able to showcase and to be able to communicate and to be able to interact with their friends. And so videos became a core part of that. And so we, we, we essentially just said, look, um, users like contact MySpace. And there was nothing, if MySpace decided that they're not gonna listen to what their users wanted, if they, if they just completely went with their own decision and stuck with it, um, there's nothing that we could have done. Uh, Huge risk. But I remember that um, deeply nested in their um, support pages, you know, I think uh, as you keep whining through the, the typical um, support links with the frequently asked questions, down there somewhere in there is the, there's a, a phone number and an email that they finally revealed to you. If, if none of these ever help, call this number. 
And we dug through all of that and just put it on the front page of YouTube saying, if you have any problems with your MySpace videos, contact uh, this number. Now, I don't know how many videos or how many, um, uh, sorry, I don't know how many phone calls and how many emails they received, but that was turned around. And not just for the benefit of the users, but it did say that, you know, MySpace permitted YouTube to be used in their in their website. YouTube was reaching out to MySpace after they banned YouTube from being used on the platform, but they had absolutely no luck getting through. But when they put that customer service number on the front page of YouTube, MySpace quickly lifted the ban. They went on to raise their first round of funding from Sequoia Capital. Uh, up until that point, Steve Chen had actually been funding YouTube on his credit card, which had a $6,000 limit. And multiple times each month, he would pay off that limit in order to keep the servers running. That is so crazy. Uh, I, I know that they also had friends from their eBay and PayPal days who they'd seen a nice exit and were able to put in uh, you know six months to sometimes a year's worth of work without requiring a salary. It was a risky bet, but yeah, it, it paid off for them. They went from building one internet behemoth to another. And with that, YouTube was on its way to becoming the backbone for video on the internet, all from trying to build the next Hot or Not. <laughs> you know, Hot or Not actually inspired another internet behemoth. Yeah, I remember how Mark Zuckerberg famously created Face Smash before pivoting to the social network that is now Facebook. Yeah, no wonder tech has a diversity problem, right? Um, <laughs> anyway, that's all from us today. We're, we're working on our next season of Rocketship.fm, and we'd actually love to hear from you. That's right. We're collecting anonymous stories from our listeners of their most frustrating, shameful, or even downright confusing stories of working in product or tech. And we're going to be telling them anonymously here on Rocketship FM and giving our own perspective on how to deal with them, maybe bringing in some product experts to talk them through with, all a part of season 10. So if you have a story to share, email us at team at rocketship.fm. We want to hear about it. Absolutely. And until the launch of season 10, we'll be back here every week with more stories on rocketship.fm. So stay tuned. Thanks so much for listening to Rocketship.fm. Rocketship FM now has a premium ad-free feed. All you have to do is go to glow.fm forward slash Rocketship and subscribe. It helps support the show and it gives you an ad-free experience. You actually get an exclusive feed that you can listen to on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Yeah, and Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective, which is a community for software product people. Product Collective is also the home of industry, the product conference, industry virtual workshops, and one of the largest Slack groups for product people anywhere. And we're also on the Podglomerate Network, so a huge thanks to Podglomerate. You can listen to all the Podglomerate shows at thepodglomerate.com. We'll see you here next week on rocketship.fm.